Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Western Schism, a period of the history of the Christian Catholic Church, wherein there were two popes, not just the one, uh, both of them locked in competition with one another for the official title. And then, after a while, out of the wings came a third pope, just for good measure. The Western Schism split Europe in two. Uh, All the different nations throughout Western Europe, they had to pick different sides, right? They had to either back the Pope in Rome uh, or the other Pope in Avignon. Uh, And this is going on against the backdrop of huge international conflicts like the Hundred Years' War. So just in case all these European powers needed another reason to fight each other, along comes the Western Schism. I'll give you some background on it. The, for much of the 14th century, right, the papacy was based in the French city of Avignon, not in Rome. It actually moved from the Italian peninsula into what is today France. Uh, and there were a lot of people who didn't like this. And so it all came at guts in the 1370s when the church bucked the trend and elected a new pope in Rome, but then he ended up being a bit of a dud. So they went, oh, okay, forget about him. Let's go back to Avignon. We'll get, we'll get the, another papacy started there. But then it wasn't as simple as that because a lot of people fell behind this Roman pope who had already been elected. Uh, and then a lot of other people decided to support the one in Avignon instead. Battle lines were drawn up across the continent based on which pope you stood behind. And these popes, they were going at each other like you wouldn't believe. They were at each other's throats. They're bloody slagging each other off, constantly attempting to undermine or overthrow the other to very little effect, right? And eventually, this cost the Catholic Church so much prestige and so much... It's it's standing in the eyes of the public fell so far. People got so sick of it that in the 15th century, everyone was trying to fix the problem, except the popes who were fighting, um, and, and mend this schism, right, with truly hilarious results, as we'll come to, because, as I mentioned before, instead of getting back down to one pope, they ended up with three instead while trying to solve this problem. So very, very amusing story. We've talked about some silly stuff that popes have done in the past, all the way back to episode 26, the Cadaver Synod, get across it. But we got some, we got some more Catholic Church nonsense this week for you to enjoy. But one thing before we get started, uh, really important to note here, Uh, This is known as a schism, the Western schism. But what we're talking about today is not the Great Schism or the East-West Schism. That was a much bigger, much more important event in, uh, in European history. And it refers to the split between the Catholic and the Orthodox Christian churches. Another story altogether. Don't get confused. This is an internal schism within the Catholic Church. But let's get into it here. Let's talk about some of the ridiculous stuff that happened during the Western Schism. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1309, almost 70 years before the actual Western Schism took place, uh, to to set the scene, get a bit of background going here. In in 1309, Pope Clement V, he moved the papacy from Rome, right, where it is today, of course, we all know this. He moved it from Rome to the city of Avignon. Uh, Avignon is in southern modern-day France. It's just northwest of Marseille. But just as the Vatican City is a little enclave surrounded by Italy, The Avignon papacy was also an enclave. It was a papal state, essentially, along with larger papal holdings on the Italian peninsula. But Pope Clement, right, Pope Clement V, he decided to move the papacy from uh, from Rome to Avignon 
And you might be going, well, why? Why do you do this? Good question. Slightly complicated answer, but we'll, we'll get into it here. At the turn of the 14th century, right, so heading into the 1300s, the papacy was attempting to more strongly assert its political power throughout Western Europe. And in 1302, uh, before this move, Pope Boniface VIII made a decree that declared total papal supremacy. According to him, kings and emperors were all ultimately vassals of the Pope. So everyone from the highest emperor, from the highest king, all the way down to the lowliest peasant, all under the authority of the Pope. Now, you know what kings and emperors are like. Some of them didn't take too kindly to this assertion that they were subjects of the papacy. And in particular, the French king, Philip IV, responded to Boniface VIII very directly by saying, your venerable conceitedness may know that we are nobody's vassal in temporal matters. Very forthright of him indeed. A savage upright of the Pope there. It might not sound like much, but this is this is some... This is a, a very serious diplomatic nose-thumbing at, um, at the Pope here. And Boniface VIII responded in a very on-brand manner when it comes to Pope stoushing with kings. He threatened to excommunicate Philip IV in 1303. But before he could, however, things about to take a real turn here, so get ready. Before he could, Philip's allies in Rome broke into Boniface's house and just beat the snot out of him. And Boniface died shortly thereafter, and his successor, Benedict XI, only lasted eight months after that, dying subtly in 1304. So the Catholic Church really going through some some turmoil and instability here. And here's where things get really, really interesting, right? Because it took almost a year for another pope to be chosen after Benedict died. And the reason for this, right, the reason for this papal interregnum is that the College of Cardinals, the people who elect the Pope, were pretty evenly split between Italians and Frenchmen. And the Italians obviously wanted to elect another Italian, like Boniface VIII, like Benedict XI had been, while the French Cardinals wanted to elect a Frenchman. And you won't be surprised to learn that Philip IV was leaning very heavily indeed on the French Cardinals and the College as a whole to elect a French Pope. And wouldn't you know it, the candidate supported by the powerful King Philip IV of France was a personal friend of his, who, in 1305, was finally elected as this bloke I mentioned before, Pope Clement V. Now, Clement had never lived in Rome. He wasn't even a cardinal before he became the Pope. He was officially informed of his, uh, of his election in Bordeaux. His coronation was held in Lyon. And one of the first things that he did as Pope was install a bunch of French cardinals. So you can really see that this fellow... He was a red-blooded Frenchman, and he was going to do whatever he could to bring the power of the Catholic Church to the French-speaking world. He withdrew Boniface VIII's claim that Philip IV was a vassal of the Pope. He backtracked on a bunch of the previous sabre-rattling the papacy had been doing and attempting to assert itself over, well, over, I mean, other political leaders in Western Europe, but specifically Philip IV. So suffice to say, Clement was very loyal to the French king, and a byproduct of all of this was his point-blank refusal as Pope to move to Rome, the Catholic Church's traditional seat of power. He just wouldn't do it. And instead, he officially established his court in Avignon in 1309, and so began the Avignon papacy, which pissed off a lot of people, let me tell you. The traditional power structure of the church had been shaken to its core. Rome was no longer the centre of papal authority, and the Italian clergy lost out big time, while all the French people, of course, while all of the French people involved in this, they thrived. So the Italians, naturally, I mean, as you can imagine, their collective noses have been put out of joint. They resent this entire situation enormously. They hate the fact that not just 
Clement V, but all of the subsequent Avignon popes are all French and also are in the pocket of the French crown. The Avignon papacy did not have a good reputation. Corruption, ambition, underhanded politicking. Although thinking about that even today, apparently that's fine when it happens in Rome, just not when it's happening in Avignon. Anyway, that's how it was for the next 67 years. French popes headed the church from Avignon, like it or not, that was the new Catholic seat of power. And these Avignon popes, they may have been disliked throughout much of Christendom, but they were never really openly challenged or disputed, not until the schism actually began. And for that, we skip ahead now to the 1370s. Seven official popes reigned from Avignon, the last of them being a bloke named Gregory XI, uh, a noteworthy pope because it was he who decided in 1377 to move the papacy back to Rome. He did this while seeking to bring about an end to uh, some of the violence between Italian city-states, to enact church reform. Um, and so despite the protests of the French King Charles V, who you can hear more about in episode 223, the Hundred Years' War, get across it, Gregory packed his bags and he moved from Avignon to Rome, bringing papal authority back to its traditional home city. But far from ending the tension between French and Italian Catholics, he only ended up making things worse by doing two different things here. Firstly, after barely more than a year after moving to Rome, Gregory seems to have changed his mind because in March 1378, he announced that he would be moving the papacy back to Avignon after all. Sorry, everyone. Obviously, he's just not that big a fan of, of, of Rome as a city or the, or the noise and the crowds and the people trying to flog your fake designer sunglasses and having your handbag nicked off you by blokes on the back of Vespers. He's had a gutful of that. So now he's back off to France. Now, that was a factor, but certainly it wasn't as important as the next thing he did, something else that he did in March 1378, something that was very thoughtless, very irresponsible, um, and it was what ultimately marked the beginning of the Western Schism. What was the foolish and careless thing that he did to kick off decades of internal conflict within the Catholic Church? I'll tell you, he bloody died, mate. Very rash, very ill-considered of him, it has to be said, because this sparked a major conflict between French and Italian Catholics, and as I said, marks the beginning of the Western Schism. Gregory had, had brought the papacy back to Rome. He had died in the Vatican Palace, and all the Catholics there in Rome were keen to see the office of the Pope remain in its traditional home city. And so to this end, these Romans went about intimidating and beating up their political opponents to the point that the College of Cardinals elected, perhaps under duress, an Italian, not a Frenchman, as the next Pope, Pope Urban VI. Now, as is the case with so many decisions made like this throughout history, this proved to be a bad move because Urban VI ended up being an absolutely awful pope. He was power-hungry and cruel and domineering. He didn't listen to his advisers. He was capricious and foul-tempered. He was generally just a bit of a loose unit, an unstable leader, unfit for rule. And importantly, he sidelined the cardinals underneath him which greatly disempowered them, something they weren't happy with at all. They've just made this bloke Pope and they're being punished for it. Uh-uh. All these cardinals that elected him, they get together, realise that they'd made this mistake in putting this guy in charge and slowly and quietly slipped away from Rome to the town of Anagni, right, which is a little way to the southeast. 
And there, they did a bit of good old-fashioned backpedalling. They claimed that the only reason that they had elected Urban VI in the first place was due to threats of violence that they'd received. They argued that there would have been riots in the streets if they'd picked anyone else. And that is uh, probably a bit of an exaggeration there, mate, to be honest. There's no doubt that Urban VI's papal election had been a little uh, irregular, but uh, people were hardly taken to the streets about it. But in any case, the College of Cardinals, they had picked their line and they stuck to this argument that they'd come up with. They reconvened and believe it or not, they took a mulligan on Urban VI and elected another Pope, Clement VII. And wouldn't you know it, just like his namesake, Clement V, Clement VII was closely tied with the French royal family, as well as moving very comfortably in other royal circles throughout Europe. This bloke was very, very well politically connected. And the first thing that Clement VII did, once elected Pope, was to move straight back to Avignon, just like Gregory had said he was going to do before he died, taking this vestige of papal power back to Avignon. This was done for a, a, a couple of reasons. I mean, it was the thing that Gregory said that he was going to do before he died. But the biggest reason, really, was in doing this, Clement VII put himself under the protection of King Charles V of France. Because as you can imagine, I mean, the Cardinals just come together and named another Pope has moved back to France. That has pissed off a lot of the Catholics back in Italy, back in Rome here, right? Plenty of them. As much as Urban VI was, I mean, excuse my strong language here, as much as he was a bit of a nasty pasty, uh, he still had been officially and duly elected and he had been recognised by the Pope, and everyone in and around Rome was very keen to have the papacy stay there, even if the big bloke with the silly hat was, as I say, a bit of a loose unit. So now, really, we've got two popes. That is as simple as we can state it, really. Urban VI in Rome and Clement VII in Avignon. Both of them have been elected by the College of Cardinals. Both have powerful support bases across Western Europe. Uh, Clement, of course, had the support of the Kingdom of France, as well as the kingdoms of Naples and Sicily to the south of Rome on the Italian peninsula. And additionally, he did some moving and shaking into the Iberian peninsula and brought the kingdoms of Castile, Navarre and Aragon on side, as well as a couple of other areas, Western Flanders, that's modern day Belgium, uh, amongst others, Welsh rebels that were fighting against England, as well as the kingdom of Scotland, which at this point in history is still independent from England. And you might think, well, why? Why Scotland? Why, why, why is Scotland aligning itself with, uh, with Pope Clement? Well, there's a couple of reasons there. First of all, Scotland and France have, had always been traditional allies uh, for reasons that will make a lot of sense to you when you think about it, even for just one second. Because if there's one thing that Scotland loves to do, it is take up an oppositional side against the English. And so not only were the Scottish aligning themselves with their old allies, the French, in supporting Pope Clement, would you like to guess who the English were supporting? Because when you hear that, it'll make a lot of sense as to why the Scottish picked the guy that they did. England, right, even if the English don't think much of Urban and the Roman papacy, right, England were very much operating under the doctrine of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the Avignon papacy is in bed with the hated enemy of the English, the French, as well as the Scottish and, and everyone else. So the English and the French at this point, are right in the middle of the Hundred Years' War, right? Really didn't matter who the Pope in Rome was. It could have been a sack of turnips for all they cared. The English wanted to make sure they were going to do something that pissed off the French. And so 
They align themselves with Rome. They align, them, align themselves with Urban. Uh, and that meant, of course, that Scotland was naturally going to align themselves with Avignon, almost out of spite, right, to oppose England. Circle of life, baby, just the natural order of things. Anyway, it wasn't just England uh, that supported Urban. Uh, there were city-states across the northern half of the Italian peninsula that were supporting Rome as well. Uh, the kingdoms of Denmark, Norway and Sweden up in Scandinavia, they fell in with the Roman papacy as did some other kingdoms further to the east, Poland, Lithuania, Hungary, right? So there are some pretty well-defined sort of power blocks here with about half of Europe supporting Clement and the other half supporting Urban. So for those playing along at home, this leaves essentially just two major European powers that we haven't discussed, two European powers that needed to pick a side here, the Kingdom of Portugal and the Holy Roman Empire. Now, between 1383 and 1385, the Portuguese actually fought what was, uh, what was it? Slightly a civil war, slightly a war of independence, and slightly also part of the Hundred Years' War. lot going on with this one. When King Ferdinand I of Portugal died without a male heir, it prompted a succession crisis that actually might have seen Portugal subsumed into the Kingdom of Castile and lose its independence altogether. So other successes were hastily found by the Portuguese who wanted to remain independent, uh, and a war was fought between Portugal and Castile, uh, so a war of independence, I guess, although it was with a lot of Portuguese people fighting for Castile, so also kind of a civil war, but it was also part of the Hundred Years' War because the French supported Castile. The, I mean, Castile was on the side of the Avignon papacy, as I said before, these guys were aligned with, them, with each other, while the English naturally supported Portugal. The English sent their longbows over to Portugal to fight off the French and Castilian forces. And we already know what sort of matchup the French tend to have against the English longbows at this point in history, don't we? Episode 88, get across it. The Portuguese secured their independence with the aid of the English. Uh, these English allies were very important in keeping the Castilians and the French at bay. And so John I of Portugal emerged victorious, defending an independent Portugal. Now, the reason I've gone into a little bit of detail in telling you about the 1383 to 1385 interregnum in Portugal is because it had a number of very important consequences, not just for the story that we're telling today, but also for the broad sweep of European and indeed world history, right? Because the English backing the Portuguese in this fight actually helped to establish a rock-solid alliance between England and Portugal, the Anglo-Portuguese alliance, which is still around today. It is the oldest political alliance still in existence, almost 650 years old. England, then later Great Britain, then the UK, and Portugal, both as a kingdom and as a republic, have never gone to war with one another since this alliance was established, and they have aided each other in countless military conflicts over the centuries. The Anglo-Spanish War, the Napoleonic Wars, the First World War, even the Second World War, where Portugal remained nominally neutral, the Portuguese capital of Lisbon became a critically important base of operations for British espionage. You can hear a bit about that in episode 66, Juan Pujol Garcia, get across it. Very interesting to learn this. I didn't realise that England slash Britain slash the UK and Portugal were such close allies, but it goes all the way back to the 14th century. But it also had an important uh, consequence, as I say, for this story that we're talking about here during the schism, because after initially supporting the Avignon papacy before the 1383 to 1385 interregnum, Portugal happily swapped over to support Rome along with their English allies, and that 
now leaves us with the question of who the Holy Roman Empire was supporting as the last major European power for us to discuss. And oh boy, how are we going to deal with this? How much time have you got? The Holy Roman Empire has to be one of the most politically and religiously confusing entities in European history. And I'll be honest in saying I don't completely understand the full consequences of the Western Schism on the Holy Roman Empire. And the reason for my ignorance uh, when it comes to this is because, uh, well, look, honestly, it is because there are only so many hours in the day, man. And this is a weekly podcast. I didn't have the several months it probably would have taken to sufficiently research this question, so I do apologize. As far as I understand it, on a very basic level, we can, we can boil it down here. Apparently, it seems like most of the Holy Roman Empire, including the emperors themselves, most of the Holy Roman Empire supported Rome, uh, but there were several imperial states within the Holy Roman Empire that threw in with Avignon instead, particularly those that were, you know, geographically closer to Avignon than other areas. The Holy Roman Empire was huge, don't forget. I mean, it was made up of all these disparate and squabbling vassal kingdoms and realms. And for more on that, episode 225 of Frederick Barbarossa, get across it. All he bloody did was deal with squabbling vassals. Anyway, those are our teams, roughly speaking. Half of Europe is behind Urban VI in Rome, and the other half is behind Clement VII in Avignon. And these two get stuck straight into fighting each other like two cats in a sack. They are at each other's throats doing everything they can to discredit and undermine the other. Well, actually, sorry, I should stop there and say, I, I say doing everything they can. They what, they what they didn't do, I'm actually happy to say, is go to war with one another. Not officially, anyway. I mean, certainly old foes on either side of the divide, like England and France, they hacked, at, hacked away at each other very cheerfully indeed, glad to have another reason to take the fight to their hated enemy. But overall, there wasn't the colossal loss of life that came with a religious conflict such as, for example, the European Wars of Religion that followed the Reformation from the 16th century onwards. So at least on that score, the schism wasn't as bad as it could have been. But still... These two popes, they went at each other hammer and tongs. And their loyal followers, right, the Urbanists and the Clementines, they fell in line to support them. Hilariously, this is a great part of this story, right? Hilariously, both popes obviously excommunicated the other, right? I mean, naturally, it's the first thing you do. But they didn't stop there. They also excommunicated the other's followers as well. And this meant that no matter which side you supported you were still going to be excommunicated by a pope. So, bit of bad news there. hope that that doesn't end up on the old permanent record when you're chatting to St. Peter at the Pearly Gates. But much more important than every single devout Catholic in Europe being put into fantasy timeout by one or other of these popes, much more important than that was the real-world social, political, and religious impact that the schism had in Western Europe at this time. And... The number one thing on this list was the fact that the church's public standing fell immensely because of what was going on with these stouching popes, and for a couple of different reasons, which we'll talk about now. Number one, money. Church taxes were still being paid, still being collected, of course, but each region paid its church taxes to the papacy that it followed, as you might expect, right? So church tax money that was collected in France, Castile, and all the rest of these places, all that money went to Avignon. Whereas church money that was collected in Venice and Genoa and England and the rest of it, that was sent to Rome. So, all right, you're thinking, fair enough. What's the problem? Everyone's still getting paid, right? Both papacies are still getting their money. Well, yes, but 
they're getting half of what they'd been getting before. All of a sudden, both papacies are half as wealthy as they had been previously because they've only got half the tax revenue coming in. And as both papacies were busy creating new cardinals and holding papal court and, let's not forget, undertaking massive bad publicity campaigns against the other, it's not as if they're tightening their belts and saving money. So essentially, the total expenses of the fragmented church have doubled. There are two popes, two colleges of cardinals, two papal courts to maintain, two of everything. Meanwhile, the total available revenue through tax, that hasn't changed. And with massive budget shortfalls looming on the horizon for both sides in both Rome and Avignon, what did these papacies do? They tried to squeeze more money than ever out of their followers. And generally speaking, I don't want to get I, I, I don't want to generalize too much here or make assumptions, but generally speaking, People don't tend to like it when taxes get raised to support what is essentially a great big pissing contest. But even more importantly than this, if you'll believe it, right, certainly when you take a broader view of the issue's consequences in history overall, more important is the massive hit that was taken by the Catholic Church's credibility as an institution thanks to this schism. Think about it this way. The Church claimed to be the incontestable moral arbiter, to have the final say in matters of right and wrong, and to be the one and only place to receive spiritual and religious guidance. And now there are these two blokes having a great big carry-on, both of them claiming, no, I'm all of those things. Don't listen to the other one. Look upon my big silly hat and see that it is both bigger and sillier than his. The moral authority of the Catholic Church was enormously damaged. How can you possibly claim to have the final say on anything when you're fighting internally about which of your leaders does, in fact, have the final say at all, especially when they're both slagging the other one off the whole time and doing it in such an undignified way? Clement called Urban the Antichrist. Cardinals that Urban didn't like were referred to as devils in human form. It really wasn't a good look for either of them. It's safe to say the schism was a disaster for the church. They're pissing people off by squeezing money out of them. They've damaged their reputation. It's all going so badly. And on top of this, it doesn't look like an end is in sight. Europe is split in two fiercely divided by this conflict, and the schism continued even after the deaths of both Urban VI and Clement VII. Urban died in 1389. He died from injuries that he got after falling off a mule. Uh, and he was, he was succeeded by Boniface IX, while Clement died in 1394, five years later, and he was succeeded by Benedict XIII, or I should be more specific, Anti-Pope Benedict XIII, as he's known today, not Pope Benedict XIII, have to wait to the 18th century for him to come along, but we'll get to these weird naming conventions in a little bit, don't worry about that. Anyway, both the new Boniface and the new Benedict, they picked up where their predecessors left off. They continued to slate the other, continued to crater the reputation of the papacies in the church. And as we move towards the 15th century, right, with this having gone on for about 20 years, people are sick and tired of it. Even all these European leaders, the, the, the kings and queens and emperors who had been so quick to fall behind the Pope of their choice, even them, they've had a gutful. They're leaning on both of these blokes to just kiss and make up because the ongoing conflict is doing nobody any good. 
King Richard II of England and King Wenceslas of Germany entreated Boniface to resign, and the French even withdrew their support for Benedict at one point and besieged him in Avignon, although they later changed their mind and returned their support to him. But none of this did any good whatsoever. Both popes continued scrapping, both of them obstinately standing by their claim to be the one and only pope, both refusing to budge an inch. All the while, draining the coffers of their respective papacies, not to mention draining the legitimacy of the Catholic Church as a whole. Boniface died in 1404. He was succeeded by Pope Innocent VII, but he died after two years in office, and so Pope Gregory XII was next over in Rome. Meanwhile, in Avignon, Benedict XIII, still kicking about, he lived a bit longer than the, uh, his, his counterparts in Rome, but with Gregory XII came a new desire to end the schism once and for all. It is tearing the church to bits. Everyone knows this. And church officials at all levels of the hierarchy, except for right at the top, it seems, are desperate for this conflict to be over. And so, to that end, a conclave was called with the proposal that if both Benedict and Gregory would meet up and if they would both agree to resign, a new pope could be elected, one single bloke, thereby ending the schism. Well, Despite the best intentions of almost everyone involved, the conclave didn't happen. Both popes feared subterfuge and betrayal. They worried that they were going to be kidnapped or killed. And so they just didn't show up. And increasingly frustrated, all of these pissed off cardinals who just wanted the issue over and done with, they began to make a new plan. Instead of just calling a conclave, they called instead for a huge ecclesiastical council to which they would invite both popes and get everything sorted out once and for all. Now, this council, very important council in the history of the Catholic Church and more broadly in Europe, this council, the Council of Pisa, it was held in 1409. And surprise, surprise, neither pope showed up to solve the issue. And this brings us to my very favourite part of this whole story. This bit is absolutely terrific. Have a listen to this. The Ecclesiastical Council, right, even without the popes present, it makes a decision. All the people there, they go, we're sick of having two popes. It's terrible for the church, terrible for everyone involved. We need to solve this problem. Two popes, it's no good. All the urbanists, all the Clementines, all the Frenchies and the Italians, they all come together at the Council of Pisa to solve the problem of having two popes once and for all. They depose both the old popes and elect a new one, and the result of this was that there are now three popes. Yes, for a brief period in the 15th century, there were three popes. There was Gregory Twelfth in Rome, Benedict Thirteenth in Avignon, and the brand new Alexander V in Pisa, each of them with their own cohort of supporters. So brilliant work, everyone. Firm handshakes all around. We set out to halve the number of popes and instead ended up with an increase of 50%. Just wait till corporate hears about these numbers. Rather than solve the problem, the Council of Pisa actively made it worse and so the schism continued worse than ever. Alexander V died before a year had passed with him in office, but he was succeeded by another Pisan Pope, John XXIII, in 1410. Now, again, anti-Pope John XXIII, as he's known today. Pope John XXIII came along in the 20th century, as some, some, some older listeners might even remember him being, being in charge back in the 1960s. But yes, the, the Pisan papacy now, believe it or not, it picked up a fair bit of support, more than you might expect. Poland, Lithuania, Scandinavia, parts of the Holy Roman Empire, and... Get ready for this. Both 
France and England. This just goes to show how ready everyone was for the schism to be over. France and England, still fighting the Hundred Years' War, both got behind the Pisan papacy just to get this damn issue over and done with. But it didn't matter. These three popes, Benedict, Gregory and John, kept up the dispute, all of them vying for supremacy until 1414, thanks to the combined pressure from both disgruntled cardinals and various monarchs who had had an absolute gutful of all the fighting. In 1414, the famous Council of Constance was called with the express purpose of ending the Western Schism once and for all, no matter what. John XXIII in Pisa endorsed the council, Gregory XII in Rome endorsed the council, and Benedict XIII in Avignon endorsed the idea that the other two popes could stick the council up their asses. I'm the pope, he says, you two can get stuffed. Still, two out of three ain't bad. And so the Council of Constance came together and made the following proposal. Both Gregory and John would resign while Benedict would be officially deposed, whether he liked it or not. And an all new pope would be elected to replace all three. By now, there is so much support behind the idea of ending the schism by any means necessary that the political will to enact this idea was readily found. And Gregory resigned, willingly enough. He was the last pope to resign until the 21st century, when Pope Benedict XXVI resigned in 2013. But what about John? I mean, wasn't he going to resign? He'd endorsed this council. He was on board with it, right? Well, no, no. He got cold feet. He fled the council. He was declared an outlaw. He was captured, charged with a billion different crimes, boring stuff like heresy and simony, as well as some very exciting charges like murder and piracy. Uh, He was imprisoned, and that's the end of him. As for Benedict, he did his best to ignore everything that was going on in Constance, and so the people in Constance returned the favour and completely ignored him, deposing him without any further ado. So, the end result, once the dust had finally settled, there was, at long last, just one Pope, Martin V. Although, I will say, Benedict never stopped claiming that he was the Pope. And on top of him, there were all these other opportunistic claimants that came out of the woodwork in the wake of Constance, all of them refusing to acknowledge Martin. There were more anti-popes than ever after Constance, although none of them had any real support. They were all so small time, they really didn't matter. The overwhelming majority of Catholic Europe, so desperate to put the schism behind them, supported Martin V. And Martin's election on the 11th of November, 1417, marks at long last the official end of the Western Schism, thank goodness. However, the historical impact of the Western Schism had only just begun. And I want to talk to you about the legacy of this entire affair, some of it silly and amusing and funny, other parts of it a little more serious. Let's start with, as I mentioned before, papal naming conventions. In the official history of the Catholic Church, all of the non-Roman popes during this time, they're not considered popes. They've all been labelled anti-popes instead. So all of the popes in Avignon after Gregory XI, the bloke who moved to Rome to start this whole story, and the two from Pisa, right, these blokes are all considered anti-popes. And this means that there are two Benedict XIII's, And there are two John XXIII's, a Pope version uh, recognised by the church and an anti-Pope version. So that 
I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? Simple. No, not at all. This distinction is not always clear. For instance, Pope Alexander V, the first Pisan Pope, he was only officially declared an anti-pope a few decades ago. And so there is now a gap in the numbering. Officially, it goes from Pope Alexander IV to Pope Alexander VI, skipping Alexander V after he was retroactively made an anti-pope centuries later. And that is on top of the absolute mess that is the numbering of papal Johns. On top of this whole anti-pope John thing, they still included anti-pope John XVI in the numbering, and then they skipped John Twentieth because John Twenty-first, who would have been the 20th, messed up and counted John Fourteenth twice. There's also no Stephen I, even though there are Stephen's second through ninth. There's a Martin I, but no Martin's second or third. It just skips straight to fourth. It's an absolute mess through and through, and the Western Schism did not help at all. However, much more importantly, right, a bit more soberingly here, the lasting impact of the Western Schism, it goes a lot deeper than numbers attached to old men with stupid hats. I talked about the loss of legitimacy and prestige that the Catholic Church suffered due to decades of infighting and bickering. This erosion of moral authority, this huge damage done to the church's public standing that was brought on by the schism, it fueled the fire of the next major religious movement to take hold across Europe, Protestantism. We're still a century away from Martin Luther and his 95 Theses, but do you know who we are in time for? Jan Hus, one of the most important figures in the lead-up to the Protestant Reformation. You met him in episodes 25 and episodes 224, get across him. As public resentment of the Catholic Church grew, it emboldened people like Jan Hus to speak out against the church, to get the ball rolling on a religious revolution that would completely change the course of European history. And just in case you're thinking, well, mate, I don't know, I'm not sure about this. Sounds like a bit of a long bow to draw trying to connect Hussitism and the schism here. This, this doesn't sound right to me. Well, let me tell you this. Remember the Council of Constance, the one that finally got rid of those three popes and replaced them with Martin V? Well, that council also had another important order of business. It was at the Council of Constance that Jan Hus after being promised safe conduct to defend himself and his views in front of the church, it was at the Council of Constance that he was arrested, imprisoned, and burnt at the stake for heresy. Huss's death sparked the Hussite Wars, another forerunner of the Reformation, and again, only fueled reformist movements throughout Europe. So the Western Schism and its ultimate resolution played an enormous part in eroding the authority and legitimacy of the Catholic Church. And while, of course, it wasn't the only thing that led to the Reformation, it still remains a significant factor. And it gave us the excellent story of people getting together to cut down on their overall Pope levels, only to accidentally increase them instead. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Western Schism and the time that there were three concurrent popes. I do hope you enjoyed it. It was good fun to get across. 
Closing out this week's episode, of course, with all the boring housekeeping stuff, including a reminder that Quarter Assed History is now on your feed. You uh, should be able to go back and see episode number one, Roland the Farter, a short 10-minute episode about him. Uh, very much setting the tone for what I'm hoping to achieve with quarter-assed history. Short episodes, silly topics. You love to see it. Uh, get across them, have a listen to them, and, and let me know what you think. And, of course, any topic suggestions for both longer or shorter episodes, whether it's half-assed history, quarter-assed history, uh, I do want to hear them. Head to the website halfassedhistory.net and use the contact form there to get in touch. Thanks to everyone who's been writing in. Been great to hear from people recently. Been getting some useful feedback uh, as well. Some of it positive, some of it negative. It's great to hear what people are thinking. I appreciate the constructive criticism. Trying to make this show better every week. Uh, and of course, I also appreciate people supporting the show in various ways. Buying merch from the merch shop, which you can find a link to at halfassedhistory.net. And of course the Exalted Patreons, supporting me week in and week out. It's so good to have you. Uh, if you want to join their Exalted ranks, you can do so. Ad-free listening, available to all Patreons. And at various tiers, you get stuff like behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, uncut episodes, early access, all sorts of things, exclusive patron-only merch. You've heard me say this a hundred times, or maybe you haven't. Maybe you're a new listener, in which case, welcome. By all means, welcome. So good to have you along. Whether you're an old listener, a new listener, somewhere in between, it's great to have you along. Of course, say it every week. Anyway, that's that for this week. Back next week with more Half-Earth History. Uh, keep an eye on the feed for episode two of Quarter Earth History. Should be coming out in a couple of days. But until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Of course, this one comes to it from Reddit historian Chicken Ness, who asks, if you collide a pope and an anti-pope, would you discover the origin of mass? Mass.